Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Thank you, Aaron, for reading the scripture for us this morning. Thank you, Pastor Cassidy, for guiding us through our worship service. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in musical uh, worship unto the Lord. And now is our time in the service in which we focus our hearts and our attention on God and God's word. Uh, So if you have your Bible, please open up to that passage, Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to be starting in verse 11, working all the way through verse 18. Uh, This is a, a part of our series in the book of Hebrews, a series that we started this long marathon journey through the book of Hebrews all the way back uh, the week after Easter in 2022. Uh, We took a break for Christmas and New Year's season, and now we are jumping right back into this marathon in, in chapter 10, and we are going to finish the race with perseverance. Amen? Amen. Uh, so, uh, make sure you have a copy of the God's Word in front of you, whether that's digitally or in the Pew Bible, the Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, if you do not have a Bible or own a Bible of your own, uh, please make sure to go ahead and take that Pew Bible home with you. It is yours as a gift from Sierra Bible Church. Uh, I heard a great story, uh, earlier this week of, uh, a young man, uh, he was a, I think a middle school age student that, that said to his grandmother when he was here. He's like, can I really take this home as my Bible? And the grandma says, absolutely you can. And he said, and I don't have to bring it back. And she says to him, you do have to bring it back every Sunday when you come to church, (laughs) when you come to church, but then you can bring it home after, bring it home after the service because it is your Bible. And the, the boy wrote his name in the inside cover and it is his Bible that we'd love to give as a gift to anyone who does not have a copy of God's word on their own. So as we are on this race, this marathon race through the book of Hebrews, uh, we are studying the the mega theme throughout the entire book that can be summarized in just three simple words. And it is this, Jesus is better. The author to the Hebrews uh, doesn't just simply come out and say, Jesus is the greatest and best of all time, which he could say that, and, and it would be true uh, along the lines of biblical authority and along the lines of who he actually is, but he wants to continually hold up the person of Jesus, compare him to other things, other entities, other objects, and say, Jesus is better. So in the opening chapter, he opens up and and talks about angels and all the majestic glory of, of who angels are, and then compares them to the person of Jesus and says, but Jesus is better than angels. And he brings out Moses and all that Moses did in leading God's people through the, the wilderness and highlights the ministry of Moses and compares Moses to Jesus and says, but Jesus is better. And he highlights the old covenant uh, sacrificial system and the old covenant high priesthood. And he puts all of this in comparison to Jesus Christ and in the conclusion throughout the entire book and the theme throughout the entire book of Hebrews is three simple words. Jesus is better. 
Today, he's going to take his aim at uh, the old covenant and the old way in which God's people approached him and the priesthood through which uh, people approached God. And he is going to take aim at that with his, air, with his arrow. And it's like uh, they do a dude perfect tr- trick shot and throw up a, uh, a, r- a wedding ring that's spinning around in the air. And the author takes an arrow, shoots it through that wedding ring of the priesthood, connects it to the priesthood and lands smack dab in the middle of the bullseye of the new covenant. It's a wonderful, illuminating passage that highlights precisely why Jesus is a better priest and mediates a better covenant. And so what we want to communicate this morning from God's word is an understanding and a deep conviction is that because God has given us a new priest and a better priest in Jesus Christ, let us as his people offer our full hearts to him in obedience. And we can do this because of two reasons that our passage highlights this morning. And the two reasons are this. One, Jesus is the priest that our heart needs. And two, Jesus is the priest that our heart can obey. He's the priest that our heart needs and the priest that our heart can obey. Now, if we were to take a random survey of uh, just people on the street and just have conversations with them and say, what is it you need? And we, we, didn't, we, we didn't allow for superficial answers. And we asked them to really go deep and, and answer the question as honestly as possible and say, what do you need as a person? I would guess that the overwhelming majority of people would dig deep and they would come to the conclusion that, you know what, if I have food, water, shelter, and clothing, I'll be okay. That's really the essentials of what I need to live. Food, water, clothing, and shelter. And if I have those four things, I can live. And let me submit to you that the reason why probably most of our people living today would give that particular answer is because we have bought a view of humanity that understands our existence as people as the sum result of physical material processes. So the answer then to what do I need in order to be a person will be in very physical and material things. I need food to sustain myself. I need shelter to protect me from the elements. I need water to hydrate myself. And I need clothing to keep me warm. Because in some very real way, we've bought an understanding of humanity that ties ourselves specifically to our material existence. But when we are confronted with the scriptures we realize that there are deeper needs than simply the materials that can sustain physical life. Humans are creatures that are created, are made in the image of God. And we have much deeper needs than simply physical ones. We have spiritual needs that need to be accommodated at all times and without which 
we would cease to exist. The easiest way to frame this understanding, this biblical understanding of the needs of humanity is through the lens of worship. Our hearts need to worship. We are not simply creatures who worship at times. We are worshiping creatures that are at all times worshiping and giving ourselves over to someone or something. It might be an object, it might be an idea, it might be a purpose, or it might just be ourselves. But we are, without a doubt, worshiping creatures. Think about it this way. When, when a person loses the relationship that matters to them most, that they lose the relationship that they worship, in fact, most, how are they consoled? How do they console themselves in the midst of loss of the object of their worship? They transfer their allegiance, right? They say, oh, I lost my wife. And how deeply stressful and devastating that is. But I still have my kids. <laughs> and we transfer our allegiance. Or maybe imagine the, the person who worships their career. When a person loses their career that they worship, that they idolize, what do they do? They move on to another career or purpose or pursuit. The reason why we respond to the question, what do we need with things that sustain us physically? It's because of our spiritual problem. The scriptures call this uh, problem our huma humanity's self-centered foolishness. The book of Psalms is filled with meditations on humanity's foolishness. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable, abominable, not, not a snowman, <laughs> abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That same line then is repeated in Psalm 53. The, the sickness that has infected the human heart has deceived us into believing if we just have our material needs satisfied, food, water, shelter, and clothes, the things that help sustain us physically, we're going to be just fine. And why do we believe that? Because in deep, in deep, deep in the heart of every human being, we're idolaters, and most of us are idolaters of ourselves. Second Timothy chapter three, verses two through four, speaks of humanity's sinfulness escalating, and clearly writes, "For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal." not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Our deepest need, therefore, is not physical, brothers and sisters. Our deepest need as human beings created in the image of God is fixing our spiritual problem, which means 
The person that you need most is not a grocer to give you food. It's not a physical trainer to help you get back in shape. It's not a financial advisor in order to get your finances in order. Your deepest need can only be met through the service of a priest. One who represents you before God and one who represents God to you. Who stands between you and him and reorients your idolatrous heart into becoming a worshiper of God. Throughout all of history, God has established priests to serve him and to serve his people. He gave specific commands to the people in the old covenant to for the priests to offer specific sacrifices that would cleanse them of their idolatry and cleanse them of their sinfulness and reorient their lives towards the worship, the pure worship of God. The author of Hebrews summarizes the role of priests uh, in one simple sentence as they served in the tabernacle of God in Israel. In verse 11, he says this, and every priest stands daily at his service. That's God's service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The writer is communicating the, the reality that imperfect priests offer temporary sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Any sinful human being who is serving before a holy, perfect, clean, and pure God must offer a sacrifice not only for his own sin, but also for the sin that he is serving. Hebrews establishes this reality back in chapter 5. And, and this means if the priest himself is imperfect, he needs to repeatedly offer sacrifices over and over for both his sins and for the sins of of the people in whom he in whom he serves the the terms that this verse uses of daily offering repeatedly is to highlight the nature that they are temporary and that they can never take away sins permanently they can't fully remove sin from the human condition the very fact that they must be repeated over and over and over again highlights that they are ineffective This was the state of the people of God under the old covenant priesthood. Imperfect priests offering sacrifices for unclean people. But then the author uses this understanding of the priesthood and the old covenant that people genuinely needed to come before God to highlight a better priest, a more permanent priest in verse 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. The, the contrast could not be more clear between the repeated daily sacrifices of the old covenant priesthood and the one sacrifice that was sufficient for all time that permanently established himself as a human priest seated at the position of authority at the right hand of God. A priest with authority is an important concept. In the Old Covenant, the people of God were always fearful of invaders. 
just coming in, destroying the tabernacle, killing off the priesthood, and then people would have no ability to come before a holy God. The sacrificial system would be over and, and done with because these invaders came in and, and, and wiped out the people of God. Like the Babylonians did in 586 when they overthrew Jerusalem and plundered the temple. The priesthood was a wonderful gift from God to the people of God, but they could not in and of themselves stop the enemies of God in their own strength. They're priests, not soldiers or warriors, or kings even for that matter. This is what makes verse 13 glorious. The priesthood of Jesus Christ isn't subject to being overthrown at any point. He isn't subject to any of God's enemies at any time. He will never be overthrown. Look at what he says in verse 13. Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a line that is a repetition from chapter 1 of Hebrews that quotes Psalm 110 and the prophecy that there will be a king over God's people who will also serve before God as a priest. He is a priest king after the order of Melchizedek that we saw in grave detail in chapters 5 through 7. And brothers and sisters, this is good news for you and for me. It means that Christ's priesthood is kingly. And this king has conquered all of his enemies so decisively that it's just a matter of time before they are fully crushed and subject to him. No other priest in all of history and all of human history can make that claim. And this means, and this leads to the glorious conclusion of thought in verse 14. In this verse, the author points out directly what this means of Christ's priestly sacrifice and how it applies to his people. For by a single offering, one offering before God, one sacrifice to God. He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. The repeated nature of the daily sacrifices of imperfect priests, they can never take away sins permanently. There's always more and more sins, or more and more sacrifices because there's more and more sins. But the once and for all sacrifice of Christ for his people permanently cleanses them as they approach God in and through him. Why does it permanently do that? Because he was perfect and did not need to make another offering, which means he ascends to heaven, sits down at the right hand of God as the king who will never be removed from office. And also as the priest who can deal gently with humans like you and like me. And it means that his sacrifice for his people is permanently effective. Now I want to share with you a story from a book entitled The Righteous Mind. It's by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Haidt is a professor of social psychology at New York University. He spent his academic career trying to pinpoint why humanity makes moral judgments. 
And what's the baseline or the base for humanity's moral judgments? His conviction, and the reason he writes the book, is because of all of his research, he's found that most Western civilization, individualistic people believe that the only true baseline for what is right and what is wrong is whether or not it harms another human being. And he's found that thinking very shallow. You hear this type of reasoning, though, in our day all of the time, don't you? It's not wrong if I'm not hurting anyone. Right? Have you heard this? I'm not doing anything morally wrong if you cannot pinpoint a specific moment of harm that is being done to another person or to oneself. Now, Jonathan Hyde is an atheist professor at NYU. And he studied moral judgments of, of humans across the globe in various cultures, and also studied it historically throughout uh, various cultures. And he, his, his conclusion is that if this is your understanding and your sole justification for your baseline of human morality, your thinking is very shallow. He opens the book with a question before he opens the book with, with a question for the reader. Now, let me warn you. Um, this question or this scenario is supposed to get a gut level reaction from you. All right. So you've been fair warned. If you don't want to hear it, just lovingly uh, plug your ears and go to your uh, happy place in your mind of uh, thinking about, I don't know, where, wherever you would rather be rather than hearing, rather than hearing this story. Uh, but it's designed to get a gut level reaction from the readers. And it's a part of his research on moral reasoning. He, he gives this example. A family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious. So they cut up the dog's body, cooked it, and ate it for dinner. Nobody saw them do this. Height goes on to explain that if you're a well-educated person living in Western civilization and a Western culture that's built on individualistic notions of morality, you probably, when, I, when, when you hear this read or this story being told, you probably felt an initial sense of disgust, probably twinged with, that's disgusting. But then you hesitated, after you think about it more deeply, you hesitated to say that the family has done anything morally wrong. The dog was already dead. They didn't hurt the dog. Their dog, it was their dog. They owned the dog. So they had the right to do with its carcass whatever they wanted, right? When most Western, well-educated people think about morality, their baseline is whether it hurts someone or someone else or even hurts themselves. But this notion has not been adopted by most of the rest of the world throughout history. Height writes, for most people on the planet, morality is broad. Some actions are wrong, even if they don't hurt anyone. Now, to be fair to Jonathan Haidt, he is an atheist who believes that humanity has developed their morality through a process of evolutionary psychology. And he is, as a teacher, outside of the boundaries of biblical revelation. But he hit the nail on the head with our human reaction to things that are taboo or outside of the boundaries of cleanliness. That's placed by God in the heart of every one of his image bearers. We know innately 
that some actions are wrong simply because they are disgusting in the eyes of God. We just talked about the tongue in, the, in, the, in James. Some words, even if they don't hurt other people, come from the evil and wickedness of our hearts and are just simply wrong because they are wrong in the eyes of God. When we use created objects in ways that they were not designed to be used by God, there is a sense of spiritual disgust that happens within our soul. We know innately that this is true. And this is at the very heart of the biblical understanding of the concept of defilement. Sin, just, sin doesn't cause us to just be deceived. It makes us defiled and needing to be cleansed. One of the reasons why the modern mind can't understand the Bible and its laws and its regulations and its commands for holiness and cleanliness is because the modern mind has justified itself into believing that right and wrong can only be revealed through the harmfulness of a person's actions towards another. That's one category, and it should be used in making our moral judgments and reasoning, but it is not the only one. But because it is the only one that gets elevated to the, to the level of exclusivity in our culture, the modern mind has justified that any action that is unharmful to others, as I perceive it, is morally permissible. It's good. It's right. Which means every form of spirituality is morally permissible if it, does not, if it does no harm to anyone else. Every form of sexuality is morally permissible if it does no harm to anybody else. Every form of self-expression is morally permissible if it does no harm to anyone else. These are the grounds for justifying human morality that are so empty and shallow and won't lead to the fullness of life that God has designed for every single image bearer in existence. And if we're honest with ourselves and we truly dig deep, we will understand that this view of morality will leave our soul both defiled, meaning unclean, and enslaved. It will leave us defiled because it will name disgusting things and say, no, those are moral goods. It is enslaving because it will give our heart over to things that will become the slave master of our own desires. So long as it doesn't harm anyone, but the end result will be to deliver unending pain and the emptiness of creation as it fails to satisfy again and again. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need a priest who can permanently cleanse us. He can cleanse our defiled heart and free us from our own enslaving passions. Brothers and sisters, you can't just trust in your heart. That's what I always do, says Pedro. Four of you who have seen Napoleon Dynamite understood that reference. Your heart is wicked and defiled. You need to offer your heart to a priest who is able to cleanse you. And Jesus, by a single offering, perfected for all times those who entrust their defiled hearts to him. You know what this means for your desires. 
It means that when you seek Jesus and Jesus alone for your cleansing, he cleanses your heart and gives you new desires. Don't attempt to justify your heart's desires and declare them morally good just simply because they don't harm anyone else. You are called to give, we as human image bearers, defiled human image bearers are called to give our heart's desires fully to Jesus and allow for him to cleanse us. Now I know some of you might be thinking in this room, well, if I do that, I'm going to need to change. Some people even in this room might be thinking to themselves, like, I know what the Bible says about homosexuality. If I give my heart to Jesus, he's going to make me become a heterosexual. And that sounds disgusting. You see how they're using the same categories? Disgust? Desire? Jesus doesn't promise that if you give him your heart, he will change you from a homosexual to a heterosexual. It's not a biblical promise. Jesus promises that if you give him your heart, you will be changed in your fundamental identity to not be defined by your sexual desires, to your fundamental identity being defined as cleansed and renewed Christian, loved and adopted servant of God as your fundamental identity. Now, some of you in this room might be thinking in a different category, might be thinking, you know, if I give my whole heart to Jesus, I'm going to need to commit to a local church on Sunday morning. I know what the scriptures say about the local church gathering. And I got better things to do on my Sunday mornings than meet with the people of God. As clear of a command as it is that we're going to get into in, cha in, in chapter 10, like, I just can't commit to these people. Like, look at them. They're so weird. <laughs> Jesus doesn't promise that if you give your heart to him, he's going to change you from being spiritually lazy, a spiritually lazy and apathetic person into a pastor. He doesn't promise that. Who loves coming to church? He promises that if you give him your heart, he will cleanse your spiritual defilement that your laziness has caused. And he'll deal with you gently and patiently because he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's completed his sacrificial work on behalf of all of his people and he has all of the resources imaginable to help you become the person that God designed you to be. He and he alone is the priest your heart needs. And thankfully, he is also the priest that your heart can obey. Verses 15 and 16, God promises that if you give your old, your defiled, and stubborn heart to Jesus, he will transform your heart into a new, cleansed, and obedient heart. He says this, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. 
Now the change in the priesthood from the old covenant priesthood to the new covenant priest of Jesus brings with it a change in the covenant with God. The old covenant, they could only read the words of God on a tablet of stone or on a scroll as they're gathered in the gathering. But their hearts themselves were unable to obey from the heart because of their hard-heartedness and their lack of a spirit of flesh in response to God. But the covenant of Christ's priesthood puts God's spirit within us, puts God's spirit into into us so that his word is closer to us even than the pages of this book are to my eyes. I will write their laws on their heart, which means he gives us a new conscience for what is right and what is wrong. He gives us a, a, a new leader who we are able to follow that helps us discern the path that he that we should take. God, in the new covenant mediated by Christ, gives us a new heart to obey him and new desires that long to obey him. Now, why can this happen? Well, verse 17 and 18 closes the passage in this way. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The law served as this written testimony of the holiness of God and the defilement of of humanity. The the law condemned us and caused us to continually need more and more offerings from the priesthood to cleanse us before God. But God has sent a new priest to offer permanent forgiveness for sins. He wipes away sins forever and writes his holiness upon our hearts and grants us his holiness as our priest who is there and able, that we are able to obey. So how do we know if something is good or bad, clean or unclean, right or wrong? We draw near to God through our high priest and bring it before him. He not only instructs us in his word to know what is right or wrong, he grants us his spirit to empower us to obey. This is the new covenant reality of being a follower of Jesus, being a, 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 the, the people of God. Now, have you ever had desires in your heart of something that is absolutely unattainable? Maybe like a desire to travel into time. I want to go back to the 1800s. Or maybe a desire as a kid of like, you know what I want to be when I grow up? A fish. <laughs> what happens if that unattainable desire doesn't go away and it's pursued as an act of worship? Meaning giving your whole life over to that desire. What is that? That's slavery. You keep pursuing after something over and over that is unattainable. You are enslaved to that object that you can't attain. When God cleanses our hearts through Christ, he doesn't just forgive us, give us a clean slate and say, go do better next time. I know my law is unattainable, but try harder this time. God gives us not only a clean slate, he gives us a brand new heart. 
that beats for him and for him alone, that desires from the depths of our soul, even through the struggle, even through the pain, even through the things that are difficult in our lives to say, no matter what happens, God, I desire to obey you and gives us all of the grace that we need when we fall short of that. This is the privilege and the honor of being a new covenant Christian. It means that any sin in your life can be cleansed. And it means that any command that God gives to you can be obeyed by his spirit. Now, for some of you in this room, the very first step towards a cleansed and obedient heart is to entrust it to Jesus for the very first time. At the end of the service, Pastor Cassidy is going to tell you a few ways in which you can respond to God for the very first time. He's also going to give a few ways in which if you are in need of prayer, maybe you've been following Jesus for years, but you're in need in prayer for a specific area in your life to be obedient to Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be cleansed of something in particular in which you can receive prayer for that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new covenant reality that we have in Christ. God, we thank you that that your holiness and your goodness and, and your mercy is ever-present. God, thank you that, you that you have sent Jesus, the, the priest that we need, the only priest that we need to satisfy our souls. God, I, I'm so thankful that he mediates a new covenant in which we are not bound to the law and to perfect obedience in our own strength, but we are offered your grace that not only provides permanent forgiveness, but empowers new obedience for new desires. So God, I, I pray on behalf of your people here, God, that you would do a deep work in our hearts, that you would help us to give our heart fully and completely to you. Come what may, whatever that might look like. God, I pray that you would, that you would do such deep and abiding work in and through us that we would reflect the cleanliness of your glory to this world. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.